you have your Bible this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 is our text. Last week, we confined our study to the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and it was there that Paul walked us through the graveyard of humanity. As we were there in the graveyard of humanity, we looked around and we saw headstone after headstone, literally as far as the eye could see, with the etched epitaph on each of those headstones, dead in trespasses and sins. I mentioned last week that there is perhaps no clearer picture of man and his sin apart from Christ than those five devastating words, dead in trespasses and sins. Paul didn't package his words in verses 1 through 3 so that they swallowed easily. Matter of fact, he made it very clear, plainly clear, that in our state of spiritual death, we were separated and alienated from God. As such, we walked freely, without care or concern, feeling perfectly at home with the thoughts and the attitudes and the actions of this present world. We walked hand in hand with the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver of this age. We were entangled in our sin. We were enslaved to our sin. And thus we carried out every manner of unrighteousness that our flesh craved and our mind conceived. We had an insatiable thirst for self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving. Remember, man's basic trouble isn't being out of harmony with his environment, but rather being out of harmony with his Creator. That is our principal problem. Being outside of right relationship, outside of harmony with our Creator. Our principal problem is not that we can't make meaningful relationships with other human beings, but rather that we, outside of Christ, do not have a right relationship with God from whom our sin alienates us. So the question is, at the end of the day, what then can reanimate the cold sterilities of such a spiritual death? Well, just as Yahweh did in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit of the Lord must breathe life onto dry bones. And that's exactly what he does here in verses 4 through 7. You see, if verses 1 through 3, if Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 stood alone, then each one of us, without exception, would stand hopelessly condemned in our sin. Praise be to God that verses 1 through 3 aren't the end of the story. There is good news. We looked at the bad news last week, and we said, for there to be good news, by definition, there has to be bad news. Bad news makes good news good. This week, we'll turn our attention to that good news. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand with us. Just so we see the fullness of the text, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, pens the following words. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God 
Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. This morning, we'll look at four actions that God has performed to save sinners from their sin. If you're taking notes this morning, number one on your outline is this. He loved us. He loved us. Paul burst forth in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, exclaiming, But God... Friends, those two words changed the entire trajectory of Paul's previous words. We were born in Adam, but God. We, were, we reeked of spiritual death, but God. We were depraved and destitute, but God. We were hopeless and helpless, but God. We were wretched, but God. We were fallen, cursed, and condemned, but God. You feel the weight of those two monosyllabic words? But God, that changes everything. Everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a wonderful and expansive eight-volume commentary set on the book of Ephesians, which I would commend to you, by the way. It's not a cheap set, but if you want a good commentary set on the book of Ephesians, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a good one. He says this concerning those two words. He says, those two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. They tell us what God has done, how he has intervened on our behalf in what was otherwise an utterly hopeless situation. Two words. But God. Those two words reveal that the great rescue of salvation is the result of God's gracious initiative and sovereign action. I mean, if you look at verses 1 through 3, there, there is no initiative on our part towards God. Why is that? Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. The initiative towards salvation breaks forth right here in verse 4. And God is the subject. God is the subject. It's God's gracious initiative and His sovereign action. You see, in our, in our sin, we aren't lovers of God. We're haters of God. We weren't looking for God. We were running headlong from God. We weren't seeking salvation. We were seeking more temporary, satisfying ways to sin. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, he says, None are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All means all, by the way. All have turned aside without exception. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, in our sin, we could not do anything to change our predicament. But God. But God. God's gracious initiative and His sovereign action stand in wonderful contrast to our hopeless fallen condition. And why? Why? Why but God? Because our God is in heaven and He does what pleases Him. God intervened and He took every necessary step to reverse our condition in sin. 
to reverse our condemnation that sin brought. Did you happen to notice, by the way, that the words, but God, those two monosyllabic words, those two words answer each of the three devastating realities that appear in verses 1 through 3? Let me, let me connect the dots for you here. Look at your Bible for just a moment. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God answers that devastating predicament. Look at verse 4. But God made us alive together with Christ. There's the answer. Look at verses 2 and 3. Just scan them there. We were once enslaved to a sinfully depraved flesh and mind. What's the answer to that? Look at verse 6. But God freed us and he raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's the answer. Look at verse 3. Look at the predicament that we were in apart from Christ. We were once under God's just wrath and condemnation. What's the answer for that? Well, look at verse 7. But God has shown us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. But God, those two words, answers each of the three devastating realities that appears in verses 1 through 3. Remember I asked you last week, or I mentioned rather, that if we were to head downtown on any given Saturday afternoon, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, And you just were to stop the average person on the street downtown during their shopping and you were to ask them the question, what is the general condition of the human nature? I said you'd probably get one of the three following responses or a slight variation. You would either get the response, man is basically good. He's not as good as he could be, but he's good nonetheless. He really doesn't have that big of a problem. Or you would get the response, man is broken. He's hurting, but the situation is not perilous. Man is sick. Or, and this would probably be the exception, not the rule, you might get the response, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He doesn't need a hospital. He's in the morgue, spiritually. What response would you expect if you were to ask the average person on the street this question? What can God do about man's fallen nature. What can God do about man's fallen nature? I think you'd get one of the three following responses or a slight variation. I think, first of all, you might get this response. God is benevolent. He's kind, but he's weak. He'd like to help us, but there's just not much he can do. He's willing, but unable. Some might tell you this. God is powerful, but yet he's distant and austere. He could help, but he doesn't really care much. He's got bigger fish to fry. He's able, but he's unwilling. Or some might tell you, and I think this would be the exception, not the rule, God is present, he's powerful, and he's personally involved. Not only is he able, but because of his great love for those whom he created in his own image, he's willing. He's merciful and gracious, loving and kind. He's both willing and he's able. Paul directs us to the character of God here in verse 4. Paul wants us to apprehend two glorious truths about God. First, he points us to God's merciful disposition. Look at your Bible. He says, but God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. What is mercy? If you had to 
take your pen or your pencil, whatever object you're writing with there, and define mercy on your notes, what would you pin? How would you define it? What is mercy? If God is rich in it, we need to know what it is and how it applies to us. If grace is getting what we do not deserve and justice is getting what we do deserve, then mercy by definition is not getting that which we do deserve. In other words, God has withheld what we rightfully deserve. He has withheld what is due to us. That's mercy. Mercy is the self-motivated, spontaneous, loving kindness of God that causes Him to deal compassionately and with tender affection towards the hopeless and helpless spiritually. You know, men are oftentimes rich in gold and silver and they pride themselves in such possessions, but God has plentifully supplied overflowing and without measure in mercy. You see, if nothing but a proper code of reward and retribution were followed, then sinners like you and me, we'd have no hope of salvation. We would remain children of wrath. That's the end of verse 3. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That would be our plight, and we would remain right there. But that's not the case, because God is rich in mercy. Instead of condemning us, which a thrice holy God reserves every right to do, Instead, he crushed his son on our behalf and he reaches out to us with the hand of divine mercy. Paul turns our attention also to the love of God. The love of God is the motivation for the mercy of God. See, the mercy of God appears in commas there. But God, being rich in mercy, that's in commas. Because of the great love with which he loved us, it was the love of God that motivated his mercy. Love is who God is by nature. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, right? God is love. That's who he is by nature. But God has two types of attributes. He has attributes that are intrinsic to himself, that those which are there apart from his relationship to creation. And then he has attributes that are reflected as a result of his relationship with creation. Let me help you understand here. Truth, holiness, and love. Those are just three. Three examples of attributes that are intrinsic to God apart from creation. Truth, holiness, and love. Those attributes God possesses intrinsically in himself. God is by nature truth. But in relationship to man, in relationship to creation, God's truth manifests itself in faithfulness. He's faithful. He's faithful. God is by nature holy, but in his relationship to man, his holiness is manifest in justice. God is by nature love, but when his love is directed towards sinners in their wretchedness, it's called mercy. Mercy. Mercy takes away misery, but love brings us to salvation. Love is the motivation for God's divine Rich mercy. Notice the degree of God's love. Look at your Bible. Paul says that God loved us with a great love. I mean, this is absolutely staggering, friends. Because our trespasses and sins weren't just a rebellion against God's lordship and his law, but our trespasses and sins were a rebellion against the love of God. 
On the very day that we were born, we were cast into the open field, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God loved us even then. The, slight, the, 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 very, the very sight of our loathsomeness didn't divert His great love. He knew what we were, and He still loved us. He knew our sin. He knew our shame. He knew our repetitive and continual lapses into the darkness of shadow. But that did not quench His love. Paul reminds us in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates or God shows His love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, love New Testament love is a verb. It's an action word. It's not just a feeling, though God does feel the feelings of love. He demonstrates His love by hanging His Son on a Roman cross. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins. That's love. He demonstrates it. Even while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love met us at our lowest of lows. And that's comforting. That's comforting. Because a God who loved us when there was nothing to attract us to his love will never be surprised or repelled by our sin in Christ. Did you catch that? A God who knows us from the inside out, who knows our sin, knows our frame, knows that we are but dust, isn't surprised by our sin. Now, he, he doesn't put his stamp of approval on it either. Never does he. Never will he. He's righteous. But neither does he leave us in our sin. Spurgeon once said, God loved us even when we were dead in sins. His love does not depend then on what we are. It flows from his own heart. It's not love of something good in us. It's love of us because of everything that is good in Him. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. He loves us because He is love. That is intrinsic to Him. He loves us because of everything that is good in Him. He knew us at our worst. He knew our worst from the first. He didn't love us because we were fair. He loved us to make us so. You see, the very scandal of grace is that God loves the very ones who rejected and spurned his love. Scandalous grace. Perhaps one of my favorite hymns is a more recent or modern hymn, just penned in the early 1900s, 1917, by Frederick Lehman. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest start. It reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, bowed down with care. God gave His own Son to win. His erring child, He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. Now, if we could, with ink, the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the very love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Though every ocean on the face of this blue ball be ink, it would drain the ocean dry to write the love of God. He loved us. 
rich in mercy, overflowing in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Number two on your outline this morning is this. He made us alive in Christ. He made us alive in Christ. Paul continues to expound on the matchless love of God when he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Just by way of a little bit of review here, that word translated trespasses there. We looked at it last week, trespasses and sins. Trespasses has the idea of a deviation from the straight and narrow path. It has the idea of stepping over the boundary. I said that we are born with a natural inclination, a natural bent towards sin, a natural desire to challenge God's boundaries. We're rebels from birth. The word translated sins there. It's the Greek word hamartia. It's borrowed from the sport of archery. It carries the idea of missing the mark or falling short, failing the target. See, in our spiritually dead state, separated from God, we're both rebels and failures from the get-go. But God. But God made us alive together with Christ. Friends, this is resurrection language. He made us alive together with Christ. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the immeasurably great power of Yahweh, so are dead men and dead women who once formerly walked in their sins, raised to new life. That's resurrection language. Resurrection. The same immeasurably great power that God employed to raise Jesus from the dead, He also uses to raise spiritually dead sinners to new life. What God has accomplished in Christ, He has also accomplished for believers. You ever created a word because you didn't have the right word to say something or to describe something? I just saw a point over there, by the way. Husband to wife pointed. You do that. I do that in, in our family. Uh, I, I'm teasing our kiddos right now. My son, Caden, is learning about subtraction and division and multiplication, and so I'll ask him, when was the last time that your, teach, that your teacher mentioned subdivision? And he says, Dad, that doesn't exist. And I said, yeah, it does. It's a hybrid, son. Sub, subtraction and division, subdivision. And uh, I, I oftentimes make words up. But think about that. Have you ever created a word because you didn't have the right word to use to describe something? Well, Paul does that right here in verses 5 and 6. He's trying to communicate something of the mystery of our union with Christ, and so he takes the Greek prefix soon, S-U-N. It means together with. Takes that little Greek prefix and he, he sandwiches on to the front of three words that were used to describe what God did with Jesus Christ after his crucifixion. Namely, God made him alive. And so what does Paul do? He takes that little Greek prefix soon, together with, and he sandwiches them together right here in verse 5 and he says that we were made alive together with Christ. God raised Christ up. Paul takes that word that was used over in chapter 1 to talk about the resurrection of Christ and he attaches the Greek prefix soon to it. And he says that we were raised up with him. I mean, there's not a Greek word that is good there. So Paul, Paul creates one. He sandwiches two words together to, to, to bring description to what it is that has taken place in our union with Christ. Our, our vital 
federal union with Christ such that he is our head and we are his body. He is the vine. We are the branches. We're in union with him. We've been made alive together with Christ. We've been raised up together with Christ and we have been seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. That little Greek prefix, soon there, it it means not only are we together with Christ, but has the idea of being mixed together, so to speak, so that in Him, in Christ, we can't be separated from Him or He from us. I love that. That's beautiful. These words make one of the most significant statements in the Bible concerning what has happened to Christians as a result of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, they underscore the believer's eternal security. I mean, if if we've been united in such a way that there is no distinction between where he ends and we begin, we have great hope of our eternal security. We are one. We are one because of what Christ has won, W-O-N, for us. Our identification with Christ in his death broke the power of indwelling sin, Likewise, our identification with Christ and his resurrection results in the implantation of his divine life in the life of the believer. See, when we were dead in our sins, we were were depraved in every area. We talked about that last week. No part of our lives was exempt from the debilitating effects of sin. Every faculty, that's what it means to be utterly or totally depraved. Every faculty of our being, our mind, our will, our emotions, our desires, our heart, our affections, our mouth, our flesh, all fallen, all touched, marred, tainted by the effects of sin. But now, but God... See, now that we've been made alive in Christ, his life now touches every area of our lives. Instead of deprovement, now there's improvement. We call that, theologically, sanctification. We are bearing more and more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, the difference between a believer and a non-believer isn't that the, that the believer's given new faculties with which the non-believer lacks. We still have mind, we still have flesh, we still have affections, a heart, emotions, desires, a will. It's not that the believer's been given new faculties that the non-believer lacks. Rather, the believer, as a result of his union with Christ, has been given a new disposition that now directs those faculties in an entirely different way. Where we were once predisposed to sin, all we could do is sin. Now, there's a new power directing our faculties. Where we once couldn't, now we're free to please and honor Christ. To have died and been raised with Christ means that we've been transferred from one dominion to a new dominion. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. See, we're now heirs of a new king and citizens of a new kingdom because of our relationship, because of our union with Christ. Here's some practical application for you. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, if you've been raised with Christ, let me pause right there. Is that that true of you? Have you been raised with Christ? Do you know him by faith and repentance? Have you, have you come to know him savingly? Have you turned your back on your sin and turned your face on the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving his mercy and grace and forgiveness? 
Not because of your works, not Jesus plus you, Jesus excluding you. Jesus excluding me. We come to that place. Paul says, if so, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are, that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes on and he says, set your mind on things above, not on things of earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Remember I said last week, you, you do what you do because you think what you think? You do the things you do because you think the things you think. If our mind is saturated with the Word of God, if our heart is being filled with the Word of God, our actions will be distinctly different. The encouragement Paul, from Paul here is set your mind not on things of this faulty, frail, failing world, but set your mind on things above. If your mind is set on things above, you will have a things above life. If your mind is set on the things of earth, you will have a things of earth life. You do what you do because you think what you think. Notice the parenthetical exclamation that closes verse 5 here. Paul declares, by grace you have been saved. So intense is Paul's conviction of the sovereignty of divine grace that he can't even refrain from breaking it in parenthetically to his thought process. He wants to place this all-important truth front and center. The dominant note of the gospel, that being grace, must not be kept waiting for further expression or explanation. Rather, it must vibrate in advance with piercing resonance. I mean, look at verse 8 and 9 for just a moment. Paul's going to spend two verses talking about the, the matchless grace of Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. I mean, Paul is going to take some significant time and deal with that. But, but here in the middle of, of mid-sentence, mid-thought, he almost breaks it in parenthetically as if it can't wait because grace, grace, grace is the theme of God's Word. I'm not going to say much about that short phrase there, by grace you've been saved. There is, there's a ton there theologically, but Andy's going to tackle verses 8 and 9 next Sunday. And so I'm going to leave that sermon to him. I'm going to leave that message to him. Here's what I do want to say, though. Grace is the theological concept that most clearly expresses Paul's understanding of Christ's work in salvation. You see, grace, by definition, stands opposed to any idea of work or merit on our part. It does stand on the work or merit of one, That's Jesus Christ and Him alone. But grace, by definition, stands opposed to any idea of work or merit on our own part. It costs the the, the precious blood of Christ, but it's free to those who receive it by faith. By grace, you have been saved. God loved us with a great love. His love is the motivation for His rich mercy. He made us alive together in Christ. That's resurrection language. Number three, if you're taking notes, is this. He raised us up with Christ. Paul says, God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, if verse 5 is resurrection language, then verse 6 here is exaltation language. Just as the Lord Jesus was made alive, 
Resurrection language, chapter 1. So we are in Him made alive. Just as He was resurrected, so we were resurrected in Him. Just as He was exalted, chapter 1, so we are exalted, seated in the heavenlies. See, God didn't raise us from the dead and then leave us in the graveyard. Just as God the Father raised up Jesus Christ and established His position securely in heaven, so He does the same for each believer. Whatever happens to the bridegroom has an effect on the bride. As believers, we, there's a sense in which we have been tried as Jesus was tried. We've been condemned as He was condemned. We've been crucified as He was crucified. That's Galatians 2.20. We've been buried as He was buried. That's Romans chapter 6. We've been made alive like He is made alive here in our text this morning and again in Colossians chapter 2. And we've been seated in the heavenly places just as He was. But not only have we been given a new disposition, we were given a new disposition as believers. Same, same faculties, mind, heart, will, affections, desires, new disposition to use those faculties in a way that is pleasing to God now. Not only have we been given a new disposition, but we've also been given a new environment Paul says that we've been raised up with Him. Implication, we're no longer creatures or citizens of this world. We're creatures of the greater heavenly realm. And Paul reminds us of that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, your, your birth certificate, your... Uh, what do you call the thing you've got to have when you leave the country? Passport. Goodness gracious. It's the most simple thing sometimes that escape you. Your passport reads or is stamped citizenship heaven. You live here. You presently occupy time and space in this world, but your citizenship is in heaven. The practical implication or application of our new position as recipients of grace is that our heavenly status being raised up with Him, gives us heavenly power. Our heavenly status gives us heavenly power to overcome sin. You see, our unbreakable union with Jesus Christ secures our eternal access to His heavenly power. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Where I once couldn't do anything but sin, now, with a redeemed heart, can please the Lord. You know, I think oftentimes we think the answer to, to dealing with sin, to fighting with sin, to mortifying the flesh is just stopping it. How, how, how do I deal with this sin? Well, I just need to stop it. I just, I just need to stop doing this and start doing this. And, and we just try to grin and bear it. We gut it out. But that's, that's, not, the, that's not the model that we get in the New Testament. How do we get into sin? How do we get into sin? Romans 1.25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and the result is we worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, created things, namely ourself. All sin is self-worship. But you can trace every single sin back to a lie that I've believed. I mean, it was that way in the garden, right? All sin is precipitated by a lie. And so how do I get out of sin then? If I get into sin by exchanging the truth of God for a lie and begin to worship and serve and, 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 and bow down at the altar of self, then how do I get out of it? 
Romans 1.25 backwards. I identify the lie, and I exchange the lie with the truth of God, and in doing so, worship and serve the Creator rather than the creation. You want to fight sin? You want to deal with sin? You have all the power. You have all of God's resurrection power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you. But there's a lie. And it's sparkling and shiny and alluring and attractive behind every sin. Every man is enticed when he's lured by his own desires, James says. It looks great. looks satisfying. You want to fight sin? Identify the lie and replace it with God's truth. That's why we need to be in God's Word, by the way. Much time in God's Word results in much resemblance to God's Son. Much time in God's Word results in much resemblance to God's Son. Though we aren't there physically as Christians, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, we are already seated in the heavenly places. Notice again the past tense there in your Bible. We're already raised. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I don't know if you can remember back this far. I don't blame you if you can't. But in our study of verses 9 through 12 in chapter 1, it's been some weeks now. There's been some water under the bridge. I get it. But if you can remember back there, I mentioned that when something in the future was so unalterable and so inflexibly certain that it could not fail to happen, the Greeks would oftentimes referring to, would refer to it as having already happened. Paul spoke of our inheritance that way back in chapter 1. Here he speaks of our exaltation. Our physical position is here on earth, but our spiritual position is in the heavenly places. And though we have not entered into our glorious future home yet, Paul is so certain of its coming that he writes as if it has already taken place. Someone once said, and I think this is a, a great ongoing prayer for us, God, while you prepare a place for us, be preparing us for that place. As you prepare a place for us, which you've promised to do, be preparing us for that place. You know, you ever wonder, why, as a believer, why the heartache, why the pain, why the frustration, why the discouragement, why the tension, why the death, why the loss, why, why all these things? Well, at the end of the day, we know this, that God does everything He does for, our, or for His glory and for our good. All things work for the good of those who love God. But even beyond that, friends, Christians, let me tell you this, in all the heartache and all the pain and all the joys and all the triumphs and all the losses and all the defeats and all the frustrations, God is preparing you for the day that you meet Him face to face. He's fitting you for eternity. Boy, that brings a whole fresh new perspective on pain this side of eternity, doesn't it? He's readying me for the day that I stand before him in all of his blazing, dazzling glory and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. He's readying me for that day. Pressure cookers aren't always easy, but the end product is glorious. 
the process to cut a diamond is tough, but the end is dazzling and sparkling. But it takes grinding, it takes cutting, it takes chiseling. Number four, we'll land the plane here this morning. He keeps us. He keeps us. He loved us with a great love, and that love motivated his rich mercy. He made us alive in Christ. He raised us up with Christ. Just as Christ has been raised, so we have been raised to life. Not only have we been raised to life, but we've been seated in the heavenlies with Christ. That is our spiritual position. What else has God done for us? He keeps us. Verse 7 doesn't say that directly, but it's there by clear implication. I'll show it to you in a moment. He keeps us. Paul concludes our text this morning with a purpose statement. Why why did God save us? Why did he lavish his mercy on us as sinners? Why did he raise us and exalt us in Christ? Well, Paul answers that question for us in verse 7. Look at your Bible. He says, so that, or in order that, or the purpose was, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God acted to save sinners so that they might serve as a display of the surpassing wealth of His grace. God saved sinners so that they might serve as a magnificent display of the surpassing wealth of His grace. You know, a Roman matron was once asked, where are your jewels? Where are your jewels? To which she responded by calling her two sons and she pointed to them and she said, Those are my jewels. So also, throughout eternity, the redeemed will be exhibited as the monuments of marvelous grace. The marvelous grace of the Lord which drew us from destruction's pit and raised us to the heights of heaven's bliss. Notice in your Bible that Paul speaks of the ages to come, plural. Elsewhere in Scripture, he talks about the age to come. Here he talks about the ages to come. He uses the plural here. You see, the miracle of transforming grace will be the subject of eternal worship. Throughout the endless ages, God will be unveiling to the heavenly throng exactly what it cost him to send his son into this jungle of sin and what it cost the Lord Jesus to bear our sin at Calvary's cross. John gives us a foretaste, a peek into the window, if you will, into our eternal glorying in the grace of God. This is, this is what eternity is going to look like, at least by in part, friends. Revelation chapter 7, just listen. He writes, A great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white, forgiven, redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ with palm branches in their hands. That's worship language, friends. And crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He's been exalted above every name, above every power and ruler and dominion and authority. He sits there in heaven heaven on his throne and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they all fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen you see glorifying in the grace of God will be our eternal vocation whatever else eternity brings it will bring a ceaseless worshiping and magnifying of the matchless grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that being the case, 
let's be practicing today what we'll do for all eternity. Let's be practicing today glorifying the God of all grace. Notice that Paul doesn't just say, look at your Bible here. He doesn't just say God's grace. Paul Paul rarely just kind of throws words out like that. He doesn't say God's grace. He doesn't even say the riches of God's grace, but rather the immeasurable riches of God's grace. I mean, Paul loved, and that's one of the things that I love about him, he loved to layer phrases. He would oftentimes reach for whatever adjective he could to give adequate human explanation to a particular subject matter. And the word translated immeasurable there in the ESV, it's the word hooperbalo. It means to, to throw beyond the mark. It literally means to overshoot, to exceed or to surpass, which I, if you had the New American Standard Bible on your lap there, that's what it says, the surpassing riches of his grace. You see, from Paul's vantage point, there's nothing narrow, nothing stingy about God's grace. It reaches even to the chief of sinners. And such were we. But God. But God. You see, the ultimate purpose in redemption isn't just to save us from hell, although that is a glorious purpose. God's ultimate purpose in our salvation is that He might receive all the glory from the blood-bought, ransomed, redeemed church, and that for all eternity. And if that's the case, if God has an eternal purpose for us to fulfill, then by implication... He'll certainly keep us for all eternity. Since we haven't been saved by our good works, neither can we be lost by our bad works. That's grace. Now, we have to be careful with that statement. We have to be careful that our deceitful, sinful hearts don't try to use that as a justification for sin. There is never, capital N-E-V-E-R, never a justification for sin. But there is the glorious truth that because we weren't saved by our works, neither can we be lost by them. What encouragement is there there for us? If God has gone to such great lengths to save us, if he's determined that the song of his grace should be on our tongues forever, days without end, then we have the confident expectation that he will usher us safely home. What about you? Do you have a but God testimony? Have you been made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ? I mean, in a room this size, it's inevitable that some of you have carried the burdensome load of sin in with you this morning. You're in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 person right now. But you can be in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 person. By grace, through faith. Humble repentance and simple Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Bring your burdens to me. I can carry them. With me, there's rest. I'm humble and gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Simple faith, humble repentance. Do you know Christ? If not, repent where you sit. Come to him. Turn from your sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus. 